So there were seven spots available on the Indian Creek Middle School basketball team, but 65 kids trying out. And I was one of them. But so were some of my buddies, Kadario, Jay, Richard, and Eric, whom I called E-Rock, right? And because I'm a big fan of nicknames, and really, I believe that, that that's just a reflection of Jesus. Because when you think about it with Jesus and his disciples, he was like, wait, hold up, we got two Simons? No, 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 I'm going to call one of you The Rock, right? Well, so, so we get that, but, but I, I called him E-Rock, and we all try out for this middle school basketball team, and unfortunately... Eric didn't make the cut. He didn't make the cut and it absolutely crushed him. All right. However, I did. And before you start to think that I'm bragging or that, that I'm some like stellar athlete, I'll be the first to tell you that I was just good enough to play a lot of sports. I wasn't great at any of them. In fact, like if you would imagine seventh grade Philip wearing his middle school uniform, it looked more like I was donning a, a Snuggie with noodles hanging out of the arm slots there. Like, like literally, like when I would run into the game, people would start to stand up because my uniform resembled like a flag, like waving in the wind. And they thought that it was time for the national anthem. So, so like that was me. I wasn't some stellar athlete. I, I just happened to make this team. And Eric, though, didn't. He was kind of the, the one of, of our kind of group of buddies who, who got cut. And, and again, it absolutely destroyed him. And I, I remember that like it was yesterday. And I remember not knowing like what to say to my buddy E-Rock. And all I could do was just kind of be there, just to be present in the locker room, and then shortly after at parent pickup and, and just the, the next few days in class. And, and the reality is that's, that's really all I needed to be was present. Just to be with Eric in that time. And, and the reality, the, the truth is that, that true friendships, I mean, they are so powerful that when life is hard, they can help you heal. And I know that that seems like an insignificant little silly story. But for us in that season of life, that was huge. That was a big deal. And I know you probably have stories like that as well. Maybe, maybe more significant, but regardless for all of us, those are big moments in life where something happens and we're going through a difficult time. And hopefully you have friends who could lean in through that season. Maybe you've been a friend who's leaned in through that season as well. Maybe you have stories like that, but, but fortunately for us, we're not alone. Like there's all kinds of stories like that. And, and in fact, in the Bible too, the Bible's chock full of stories where, where tragedy happens, something bad happens and, and, and people show up and they lean in. Well, well, we're in part three of this series called Verbs with Friends, talking about friendships. And, and, and though some of the stories we're talking about happened thousands and thousands of years ago. And the one we'll talk about today indeed happened thousands of years ago. They're, they're, they're still so applicable to our lives today. And the story that we'll talk about today, it's, it's about a friendship built on trust. And so our verb today is this word trust. That's an ultimate building block for any friendship, any type of strong relationship. And, and listen, I do want to say, because um, I, I know when we talk about friends, there, there's, there's usually this immediate like excitement because we think of people we care about in our life. But, but I want to hold this very tenderly because I know that, that there's so much hurt when it comes to friendships. Maybe because of past 
um, like, like things that have gone down between you and someone else, and, and it's just kind of left you bitter. And, and I get it. And I want you to know that, that there's hardships, and we're not blind to that. We know that, that when you think of friends, sometimes like it, it, it can kind of draw up some emotions you'd rather not feel. And, and I just want to say that maybe in this season, as we talk about friends and we talk about all these great friendships, maybe for you, if you're not, if you're not jiving with that, if you're not tracking along because you're more well-versed with loneliness than you'd like to imagine, I want to encourage you to keep being a friend. Like when you have an opportunity to lean in and to love other people, to be the best half of a whole that you could possibly be. You know, we said when we started this series that, that we encourage you to be the type of friend you'd like to have. And so, so I want to encourage you to hold on to that. And we'll see in our story today that, that had these people, when they go through a very hard season, had they have given up, had they have, have called it quits on their friendship, on their relationship, they would have missed out on what all God had for them and through their friendship. And so I want to encourage you because you could be, if you just keep holding on, you could be on the brink of a very fruitful friendship just around the corner that God could work through to bring life, not only to you, but to other people as well. So don't give up. Okay, so today, the friendship that we're gonna be talking about is found in a book of the Bible that I'd love for you to join me in called Ruth. That's the name of the book, Ruth. And so Ruth is about a fifth of the way into the Bible. If you'd like to join me there with your Bible, but Ruth is one of two books that's actually named after a woman, Esther being the other one. And, and Ruth, however, this is really significant. Ruth is the only book of the Bible where women actually speak more than men. I love that, that women are propelling the message of hope in this book called Ruth. All right, so let me just kind of paint the picture a bit about this book. It's a beautiful work of theological art. It's a, it's a story that's told in four short chapters. You could read this in just one sitting, and I encourage you to do so, but it explores these beautiful themes of tragedy and death, of joy and birth, nobility and genealogy. And it actually has three main characters, but we'll focus on two of them, Naomi, the widow, and Ruth, the Moabite. So these are two of three main characters, the other one being Boaz, who plays a significant role in another aspect of the story. But this is the friendship that we will zoom in on. But the book of Ruth is this account of real people who lived a really long time ago, yet even still, it's rich with application for our lives, both in a practical sense and in a spiritual sense that we'll find out a bit later. But ultimately... This book, as you read it, it invites you to contemplate how God is involved in our day-to-day -day lives. And the book, actually, it opens up with this line. It says, in the days when the judges ruled. So Ruth 1, 1, in the day when the judges ruled. So it kind of, it, it, it paints this, this dark backdrop and reminds us of the bleak existence of God's people from the book of Judges that comes right before the book of of Ruth. And so, so right at the onset, it says in the day, so it's kind of giving you some context of when this goes down. And then it introduces us to an Israelite family in Bethlehem. And this family is caught in the middle of a famine. And so they decide to up and leave. They decide to, to flee to an enemy country called Moab because they're 
was, was life. Even though it was dangerous, even though they'd be foreigners, they still have food and they still have water that was accessible. So they decide to leave Bethlehem and they go to Moab. But once there, once there, this family, they show up, right? And they're, they're kind of getting settled. Once there, the father dies. So, so the father dies, leaving Naomi, right? Leaving Naomi to be a single mom with two sons. Well, her two sons, they eventually marry Moabite women, right, who are in the land where they're living now. They marry these two Moabite women named Ruth and Orpah. Ruth and Orpah. And though missing her husband fiercely, like all seemed fine for about a decade until both of her sons died too. So, so, so think about this. Like, like Ruth um, and Orpah, they marry into this family. And now Naomi, who's lost her husband, but, but things seem to be turning because her, her, her sons married these two women. And now her sons die as well. So she is left heartbroken with only her two daughters-in-law intact. And she decides in this moment, in this brokenness, amidst the tragedy, she decides, hey, it's, it's probably best that I, that I go back to my homeland, that I go back to Bethlehem. And, and she knew, though, she knew how hard it would be because she had lived it. She knew how hard it would be for foreign women to make a new life in a foreign country. And so she says, hey, listen, you two girls, Ruth, Orpah, you, you're Moabite women, and I'm going back to Israel. It's probably best that you stay here. And, and so imagine, imagine, put yourself like in her shoes for a moment, that your entire family taken away from you in a tragic instant. Right, like you're, you're angry, you're grieving, you're desperate and hopeless. And like you actually followed your husband to a new town and country far away from your roots and your comfort. And then he died. So you're left a single mom, but, but you're strong. And you're determined. So you dust yourself off, you trek forward. But then your sons die too. And so you tell their wives who are left in, in their brokenness too. You tell them, listen, you best not hitch your wagon to me anymore. Like, it would be best if, if you hop off the ship because this thing is going down. I mean, she's saying, listen, girls, you've got your whole lives ahead of you now. Like, I am in distress. I am in, in this brokenness. I'm just going to go back to something I know. It's probably best that you move on with your life. You've got so much ahead of you. Just dream big. You know, it's kind of like my son, Grayson, when he was four years old, he, he came to me. I was like working in the garage. He said, Dad, I think I know what I want to be when I grow up. And I said, buddy, what's that? And he said, bald. I want to be bald when I grow up. And I thought, what in the world? And it's like Naomi is saying, listen, I'm not going to judge your dreams, but, but I would suggest you consider a new one. And so that's what she says to these girls. She says, listen, like, like I, I, I just think it would be best if you chose a different path. I'm probably not it. Well, Orpah she heeds the advice and she eventually decides, yeah, yeah, I, I get it. I'll, I'll stay here in Moab. While Ruth, Ruth displays this considerable loyalty to Naomi. And then she says perhaps the most famous line from the entire narrative. She says, just don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Just don't, don't urge me to leave you. She says, where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. I mean, think about this statement she's making. She's saying, listen, Naomi, wherever you go, I'm with you. 
Like wherever, wherever you stay, that's, that's going to be me. That's going to be my new life. And, and listen, I, I hear that, this, this, this like statement, this bold statement, where you go, I'll go. And quite honestly, I don't know whether to read that in like a Liam Neeson voice from Taken, like where you go, I will go. Or like in my three-year-old son's voice, Beckett, like don't leave me kind of thing. But regardless, like that is what she's conveying. She's saying like, I want to be with you. Like, like I, I don't want you to push me away anymore. I've decided, I've decided that I'm going to follow you. But, but seriously, think about that devotion. Think about all that's being exhibited and presented and displayed in this moment that, that, that for Naomi, she had two people left in life. Orpah, who she just pushed away and, and probably hugged for the very last time. And then, then Ruth, who says, I'm not leaving. In fact, she, she continues. She says, listen, listen, where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. She said, listen, I want a plot beside your grave. That's how devoted I am to you. She said, I want to be with you because I am for you. So she said, in the midst of all the tragedy, in the midst of all the hurt and the pain, instead of being pushed away, I'm leaning in. And then she says these where she says, when, when, when Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. I, I love that. She eventually relented. And, and the, the reality is that that could kind of be a life verse for married men, right? Like, like when you realize that she's determined, you stop urging, right? And so, so that's what happens here. Eventually, eventually, Naomi just says, okay, okay, I don't understand why you would want to be with me. My whole life is a wreck. There's nothing I can provide for you anymore. Like I, I gave you a son. I, I can't do that again. She's like, my, my life is, is, is completely changed. It's on a new path now. And I don't know why you'd want to come, but, but okay. And, and if, if you're wondering like who your true friends are, take note of the people who stick by you. I mean, the reality is like, like there's, there's a few ways that people lean in and, and I want to bring up too that, that true friends stick by you even when you try to push them away. The true friends, they stick by you even when you try to push them away. And listen, especially in a season of grief. I mean, sorrow seems to have this way of twisting our perspective, which leads us to making illogical and irrational decisions. And, and friends, they notice that. They notice when things seem off. Maybe you've experienced this in your own life and, and you have a choice there as a friend to either lean in or, or to act like nothing is going on. And so, so let me ask, when life gets painful, who can you count on? Like take inventory. When life gets painful for you, who can you count on? Because Naomi learned in this moment that she could count on Ruth. But in, in the same way, when life gets painful, who can count on you? Like who can count on you? Who are you running to and leaning in? And you know when they reach out that you are there to meet a need because friends notice pain. Friends notice pain, and when you're aware of a friend who's going through some stuff, then don't settle for elementary answers to empathetic 
questions. Like, like when, when you have serious questions, say, hey, how are you doing this? I'm, I'm fine. You, you, you know there's more. And so lean in. You see, Ruth didn't settle there. And I, I mean, a stiff arm. It may be an initial defense mechanism when things are hard and we don't want to necessarily disclose that, even to our closest friends, but friends with a relationship built on trust, like these two. Friends persist because they care. And, and so do your best to be that type of friend now because one day, you may find yourself being the friend that needs that type of friend to lean in. And so that's the first point, that, that friends stick by you even when you try to push them away. And the second is this, that true friends stick by you even when your trajectory in life changes. Listen, the vast majority of my kids' friends are proximity-based meaning that they happen to make friends with kids who live in the same neighborhood, play on the same team, or are in the same class, maybe even go to the same church. And the reality is that's, that's how most adults make friends as well. And while shared interests are great springboards for friendships, absolutely, that, that makes sense that where your paths kind of cross, that you would make friends there. But, but we have to realize that what draws you together is not always strong enough to keep you together. Here's, here's what I mean. Like I have some friends that, that what has brought us together is Georgia football. Like that is the sole basis of our friendship. And nothing is wrong with that. Nothing is wrong with, with having shared interests, absolutely nothing and making friends in that way. But if that's as far as my friendship goes, then that's as much as it can handle. Because when life happens, Georgia football, as great as I think it is, cannot sustain those friendships. Has to go deeper. And unfortunately, it oftentimes takes life happening in, in oftentimes a bad or terrible or, 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 or tragic sense for us to discover who our true friends are. Oftentimes it takes stuff like a job loss or a move or financial hardship, or a divorce, or a death, or a breakup to reveal who true friends are. And then you realize this hard truth. Listen, you realize this hard truth that for some people that you considered a friend, you were never actually walking together. You were merely walking the same path at the same time because as soon as your trajectory took you in this direction, they continued on without you. And as hard as that is to hear, it's good to recognize so that we can guard against being that type of friend ourselves. Because may we, as Christians, as Christ followers, may we be better friends. May we be better, like much like a firefighter who runs into the uncertainty and confusion. May we run into and toward the brokenness and the hurting. Like, may we, we be people that, that care for people, all kinds of people. May we lean in to people, including those we call friends, with the goal of building trust and reconciliation to God and to one another. You know, speaking of, of firefighters, fire is so cool, right? Like, like, maybe you're a fan of fire. I've always been, fortunately, I've, I've never really been 
burn, but, but when you think about fire, I know some of you are, are, again, like you love to play with fire, firecrackers, all that kind of stuff. One person that comes to mind that loved fire was like Tom Hanks and Wilson from Castaway. You remember that? Like I have created fire, this sort of thing. So love, love fire. But the neat thing about fire is that it's so unlike anything else, right? Like it is so unique. And while it does have the raging potential to cause mass catastrophic devastation and damage, fire can also be used for good. Like fire can be therapeutic. It can be purifying. It can provide warmth. It can, it can provide a means to cook and protection. And, and a fire can also mend broken things back together. You know, there's this brief scene in the movie, Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King, where, where there's a scene called the reforging of Narsal. And, and Narsal was this once mighty but broken sword. This once mighty but broken sword, this, this metal that had been shattered. But it doesn't stay that way. Check this out. Now listen, whether you've seen that movie or not, whether you like that movie or not, it doesn't really matter. What matters is, is the illustration that, that, that if you have a broken piece of metal, there's only one way to fix it, and that's through fire. That, that just like this broken sword that was mended, the account of Ruth and Naomi shows us how, how, how shared difficulty it did something amazing in their lives that in the midst of their pain, Ruth and Naomi, two very different people with two very different backgrounds who had different racial makeups and, and each possessed like a different cultural heritage. These two women, they were brought together and then put back together through shared hardship and through their shared friendship. And, and so this is our big idea today that in the fire, true friendships can be healing. In the fire, true friendships can be healing. And so if you don't get anything else, get that truth. Get this, this idea that in the fire, true friendships can be healing. And so church, may we enter into the stories of others with an open heart and a willingness to give ourselves away. Having friendships built on love and trust, not just commonalities and shared interest. And so Naomi and Ruth, with this brand of friendship intact and in tow, they pack up all their things and they're leaving Moab and they head back to Israel and more specifically to Bethlehem, the hometown of Naomi. And then Naomi decides to do something very, very personal for her. She decides to change her name from Naomi to Mara, Mara, which means bitterness in Hebrew. And so we read that at the end of chapter one, how, how like all of Naomi's like old friends and folks who knew her and know her family and all this kind of stuff, they all, they all kind of come out for this welcome home block party. And they're like, Naomi, it's so good to see you. And, and she's like, don't call me that. Call me bitter. And they're like, 
What's going on? They're like, well, well, hey, okay, Mara. They're like, well, hey, how was Moab? How you've been there for like over ten years now? How was it? She's like, terrible. And they're like, what's going on? Right? And you can imagine some are like, hey, honey, maybe we should scratch Mara from like the the guest list Friday night. This kind of thing, right? So she comes and it's like, hey, we were all excited. Now, like, what's going on? This seems to be pretty rough, right? Well, shortly after they get back. They're, they're settling back into Bethlehem and, and they're trying to figure out how they're going to survive. I mean, these are, these are two women, albeit strong-willed women, determined women, but, but they're trying to figure out how they're going to navigate a very oppressive culture to women. And so they decide like, hey, listen, here's what we'll do. We'll send Ruth. Ruth will actually go out to some, some of the fields around here and she will just kind of follow all the farmers because it was the beginning of harvest season. She would just follow the farmers. She would kind of collect grain, whatever they left over, right? And so she would kind of collect it all the while just kind of crossing her fingers. She didn't cross some angry farmer who, who would treat her harshly or worse. Okay, so that was the risk that she was going to take. But, but by the providence of God, Ruth, Ruth picks a field that was owned by a, a noble man named Boaz, who happened to be a distant relative of Naomi. Well, it, it didn't take long for Boaz to kind of recognize what was going on here, that this new woman is foreigner, like she's dressed different and she's in mourning, but she's picking up leftover. And so he kind of sees what's going on. And in this brilliant act of, of compassion, Boaz makes sure that Ruth, again, this immigrant from the enemy country, he makes sure that Ruth gets plenty of food and that all of his workers treat her with dignity and respect. But when we pause and we kind of like, we, we call a timeout and we peel back, the layers, it's not just mere compassion that's driving the actions of Boaz. It's also his commitment to God's word. You see, Boaz is actually upholding and adhering to some very specific Old Testament laws about providing for foreigners and giving to the poor. And moved by Ruth's care for her mother-in-law, Naomi, Boaz actually praises her for her efforts. He addresses her and he says these words. He says, I've been told, he says, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. He's like, I've heard the story, how you left your father and mother, like you left your homeland, you left Moab, and you came to live with the people you did not know before. He says, listen, I've heard all about this. I've heard all that you have done. And then he kind of prays this blessing over. He says, may the Lord repay you for what you've done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And so we fast forward. And Ruth, she, she kind of has these interactions and, and she's gathered all of this great, like a truckload of grain by now. And so she goes home. She goes home to Naomi and, and she kind of sits with her and she's like going to spill all the tea, right? She's going to tell her all about this guy she met named Boaz. And, and then suddenly, suddenly the, the whole atmosphere, the room, the whole, the, the whole feel, it, it's lifted. And everything kind of changes in this moment. And Naomi gets super excited for like the first time in a long time. And her wheels start turning. And we're like, well, why would that happen? Because she recognizes immediately this name. She recognizes her long lost cousin, Bo, as their kinsman redeemer or family redeemer. Family redeemer, essentially, here's what that is. Basically, this was a cultural practice where if a man died, 
and he left behind family or property. It was a family redeemer's responsibility to step up and to stand in the gap, to take ownership of whatever was left. And so whether that meant marrying the newfound widow, inheriting new land, or preserving the family lineage, he would step up. Well, this he is Boaz, this owner of all of this land there on the outskirts of Bethlehem. And you can kind of see where this is going, right? And listen, if you've not read this story, I really do encourage you to do so. But for time's sake, we're going to jump ahead. You see this, this loyalty and this trust that was originally displayed by Ruth to Naomi is now being mirrored in Boaz to Ruth. You see, Boaz goes on to, in fact, redeem the family. He stands in the gap. He marries Ruth, he inherits what very little they had. It actually cost him more to make all of this happen, but he preserves the family lineage. And then the story that, that began with tragedy and death concludes with joy and birth. Because Ruth and Boaz go on to have a baby boy named Obed, who would be in part raised by Naomi. And if the story ended there, Think of this, like, th think of this ending. This would be such a good story, but it doesn't end there because it's a God story. You see, it actually ends with this, this very simple yet profound genealogy. And it says that Boaz was the father of Obed, which we just learned, and Obed was the father of Jesse. And Jesse was the father of David. And so, through an unlikely friendship between two very different people, a bitter Israelite woman with a distant cousin and a Moabite widow who became the great-grandmother of King David, God worked to secure the lineage from which the Messiah would come. And so when we pan out, we see that, that those very same fields where Ruth gathered leftover grain on the outskirts of Bethlehem that were once owned by a man named Boaz. The very same fields where she met Boaz, those would have been the same ancestral fields where David would eventually tend to his own father's sheep out under the stars, which would have been some of the very same fields where centuries later we'd find other shepherds tending to more sheep during a census ordered by Emperor Augustus where all people were ordered to go back to their families' hometowns, including a small family made up of a young pregnant girl named Mary and her fiancé she's traveling with named Joseph. And they're traveling back to his ancestral hometown called Bethlehem. And in that moment, out over those fields where those sheep were that Boaz once owned and Ruth once gleaned from, the starlit sky would open up and would announce the birth of the promised Messiah, the son of David, Emmanuel, God with us, to be born in Bethlehem. And Jesus, Jesus would no doubt come from the lineage of David, the great-grandson of an outsider, a once-widowed, foreign immigrant, pagan-turned-promise-keeper, and literal friend of bitterness, yet a hopeful, courageous love-initiator and hope-conveyor named Ruth. Which means that God's rescue plan 
for not only the nation of Israel, but for all people was carried out through simple faith and a loyal friendship built on trust. Built on trust. Trust between ordinary people who would surrender to God's plan, proving that it doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter where you're from or what you've done, that God loves you and can use you for his grand purposes. And so when we here at Northeast, when we talk about loving the 40509 and beyond, here's the beauty in that, that, that you very well may have the opportunity to love someone into an eternal impact. And all through the gift of friendship. And so when life throws curveballs of hurt and fear and loss and disappointment, you don't have to go at it alone. God has given us each other. Remember, in the fire, true friendships can be healing. But more importantly, he has promised to never leave us. And he proves it. When we're in the fire and when we're not. So let's pray. Father, we're grateful for the ultimate hope that we have in Jesus, our Savior, who traces his lineage back to King David, the great-grandson of an outsider named Ruth. And God, I'm thankful that Ruth surrendered her future and comfort to be a good friend to Naomi and to be used for your greater purposes. God, my prayer is that you help us to grow and build more Ruth and Naomi kinds of friendships, taking cues from these two strong and persistent women. May we lean into one another and into friendships that help us heal and into opportunities for us to help others heal too. God, no matter what fires we go through, let us not grow weary, but as James says, for us to consider it pure joy because we know that the testing of our faith produces perseverance and perseverance leads us to becoming full and complete, restored and reconciled. So God, may you be glorified in our friendships and all of this in your son's name, amen. Thank you, Philip, for such an encouraging story. It's so cool to see how Ruth and Naomi's friendship is so impactful for each other and as well as the takeaways that we can have from it in our lives. And if you've missed any of the series that we've had previously, any of the messages we've had in our Verbs with Friends series, I wanna encourage you to go check them out because here at Northeast, we love looking at scripture and finding those takeaways for our lives, finding those applications that we can apply to our everyday situations. If you're here with us this morning and need someone who's able to pray with you, make sure to reach out through the Northeast app or even click the link that's on the screen here. We would be more than happy to spend some time praying with you and walking through life with you. Lastly, church, we always wanna make sure we take time to worship together through giving. And no matter how you give, whether it's through the Church Center app, through mail, or even online at ncclex.org, we wanna say thank you because it's your generosity that enables us to take part in the work God has called us to do. It's your generosity that enables the kingdom work, not only here at Northeast, but in Lexington and beyond. And we count it such a privilege to be a part of a church family that truly chases after the work that God has called us to do. So we cannot say enough, thank you, thank you, thank you. Again, thank you for worshiping with us this morning. We wanna encourage you to stick around because we've got some exciting things coming up the next couple of weeks that we don't want you to miss out. 
On May 2nd, we have our family dedication, as well as on May 9th, we have our Mother's Day service. This is a great time to just lean in, go all in and see what's going on here at Northeast and how we can get you plugged in to what's going on around here. Again, thank you for worshiping with us this morning and we'll see you next week.